I'm John Walsh. I know the heartache of having a missing child firsthand. In 1981, my six-year-old son, Adam, was abducted and later found murdered. Tiffany is a student co-ed at the University of Florida. She has blonde hair and brown eyes. If you lived pretty much anywhere in Florida in 1989, you knew the story of Tiffany Sessions. She was last seen power walking in front of her apartment at Casablanca East Apartments wearing red sweatpants, with a white sweatshirt. Her face, her name, and the few details of her very mysterious disappearance were everywhere, and some really big names were putting her at the top of newscasts and on the front pages of local papers. We're talking everyone from the then Florida governor. Hello, I'm Jeb Bush. Tiffany Sessions was abducted in Florida and is believed to have been taken out of the state. To NFL superstars. I'm Dan Marino, the Miami Dolphins, a friend of Tiffany Sessions. We really need your help. The story of the missing 20-year-old University of Florida student became so publicized it was quickly pushed across state lines and soon people all over the country were looking for the girl who went on a walk 31 years ago this month and was never seen again. I'm Haley Holloway and this is Shallow Graves. She's a very happy-go-lucky girl, you know, smiling, positive, upbeat, laughing, very friendly, always in a good mood kind of girl. That's Kathleen Frezza. She was Tiffany's college roommate. Both girls were UF students. Tiffany was a junior studying finance and Kathleen was pre-med. And they lived together in a complex of townhomes called Casablanca East, a couple miles from campus. She was always looking to have a good time. And I don't mean excessively party, that's not what I mean. But, you know, she just enjoyed going to events and having a good time. Kathleen says Tiffany had come back from Christmas break that year ready for a lifestyle change. So she was starting a new diet and exercise program called Nutrisystem. It always kind of stuck in her mind that she wanted to lose weight. You know, she talked about it. So she came back, and I guess her dad had agreed to let her go on this Nutrisystem, which was very new at the time. Like, right now, it's, like, everywhere, and everybody knows about it. But at the time, it was not that well-known. As you know, it was 30 years ago. So she came back with all her stuff, all her food, and she was really intent on sticking to it. And it, it incorporated some kind of exercise, so that's what started her to do the walking. Tiffany started power walking, and she always took the same route. I did her walk last year to get an idea of what the path was like and how much of it was hidden in the trees. 6.52. The route has two main chunks. Think of it like an uppercase L. The short end of the L starts at the girl's apartment and goes through what was then a pretty secluded makeshift trail. And then it turns right onto Williston for the longest part of the L. So it's 7.06 and I just now got out to Williston Road. So just from Tiffany's apartment to the main road took me about 15 minutes. Okay, make a mental note here to remember Williston Road because it's one of the bigger main roads in Gainesville that leads to I-75 and it's a key location in a lot of pieces of this series. So anyway, Kathleen would go on this walk with Tiffany a lot of the time and she says they'd stop just before 75 at the Nationwide Insurance Building and that's where they'd turn around to head back home. Okay, I'm 
back to my car. The sun is setting literally right now, so it'll be pretty dark here in a few minutes. It's 7.49, so it took me almost an hour to do that whole walk. I just wanted to see how much of it was in what would have been a secluded spot. Yeah, enough. Enough, like, that, like, I wouldn't do it now. Yeah. 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 Now there's, the, I think the polos were going up. Right. Then. There's apartments there now, but it was only a very small apartment complex, older, one level, and then the rest was just trees. I think this piece is really important. A lot on that route has changed since 1989, and one of the most noticeable changes is that there are now several big apartment complexes where back then it was just trees. And so while getting from the girls' townhouse to Williston Road doesn't have the same secluded feel today as it did back then, you can still hear the drastic contrast between the busy parts of the route on Williston Road with tons of traffic and lots of other walkers and runners and the path between that road and home. A 15-minute walk through the trees, no pavement, no lights, and sometimes no one else around. We think that's how it was that night, February 9th, 1989. Tiffany was likely on that path, almost totally alone. Because even though Kathleen was often there with her, she couldn't go that night. She had class. And so Tiffany left to take the walk by herself. So I had a class that started, I, I think I had to leave the apartment roughly at 6.30, something like that, because I think it was a 7 p.m. class. So I usually tried to leave no later than 6.30 and usually you know, 6.20 or 6.25, something like that. And she knew that. I reminded her on the way out, say, you know, I said, just, you know, you got to be back by whatever time it was because I have to go to class. And she's like, yeah, okay, no problem. I'll, I'll do that. And so she had her watch on. She was going to, if it was starting to get like a little bit lengthy, she would have turned around early and come back so that she knew she could get back in time. Tiffany had to get back on time because she'd borrowed Kathleen's red sweatpants and they didn't have any pockets. She didn't want to have to carry her keys on the walk, and the girls didn't want to leave their apartment unlocked when Kathleen left for class, so she had to be back before then. All Tiffany took with her were a Walkman and a watch, a gold Rolex that she coveted. Her dad had given it to her, and she pretty much never took it off. You fell asleep? Wait, I fell asleep on the couch. I had the TV on, and I said, oh, well, I'll just close my eyes, and then when she comes in the door... She'll wake me up and then I'll go. I was you know, thinking maybe I would get like a 15-minute nap or something like that in. Yeah, so then I, I fell asleep and when I woke up, it was almost completely dark and it was later than she would have normally been back. So I was kind of like, she's not back, she's behind. And then, you know, time went by, she still didn't show up. So I got worried. I skipped my class and I took the car and I drove the little route that we typically took didn't find anything, called some friends, basically asking for advice, like, what do I do? Maybe an hour or two went by and I called the police because it, it was really cold. It was early February. It's cold in Gainesville compared to Miami, for sure. She didn't have a jacket on. It was very dark. The route that she took, there wasn't a whole lot of light, not like it is now. 
so I, I just, you know, I couldn't have imagined what had happened. I thought, oh, maybe she got caught up with a friend, you know, or something. But she would have, when she got to their home or whatever, she would have called and said, hey, go ahead and lock the door. Or I'll come home after you're home from class or whatever, something like that. But nothing like that happened. After the police came, Kathleen called Tiffany's parents, Hillary Sessions and Patrick Sessions, and that was two separate phone calls there because they had gotten a divorce when Tiffany was a baby. Hillary lived with her second husband in Valrico, which is close to Tampa, and I went down there last year to talk to her about the night her daughter disappeared. All of a sudden, about 9 o'clock, the phone rang, and my husband picked it up, and he said, it's for you. And I said, okay. So I took the phone, and the person on the other end said, Hi, this is Kathy Sue, and I think we have a problem. And I went, what's the problem? And she said, Tiffy went out for a walk and hasn't come back. And I went, oh, no. Tiffany's dad, Patrick Sessions, got the same call in South Florida. And I said, well, does she have a boyfriend? Do you know where she is? And she lived in a big apartment complex. And I said, I said, where's your car? And she goes, it's in the parking lot. And her Car keys are here and all her stuff's here and the whole thing. She'd taken a Walkman with her and that was it. And so that kind of was a little scary, you know, even if she had gone to somebody's house. But I thought maybe she walked into somebody's apartment and was partying or fell asleep or whatever. Uh, I never certainly expected what was going to happen. Since it was the middle of the night, both parents decided to wait until the morning to see if Tiffany showed back up at her apartment. But when they talked to Kathleen first thing the next day and Tiffany still hadn't come back, they each headed straight for Gainesville. Patrick lived in Miami, so he got on the first flight up, and he still remembers looking out the window as they flew into that little college town and realizing that they might have a big problem. Once you cross 75, even today, but in those days, that was the end of the world. You know, you cross 75 on Williston and you were in the woods, and that's one of the things that sticks in my mind more than anything. I thought to myself, oh my God, if something's happened here, how will we ever find her? When Hillary and her husband made it to the girl's apartment, they did what everyone else was doing. They started retracing Tiffany's steps. We walked the whole distance on both sides of the road. Didn't see anything. Nothing that was out of the ordinary. We were looking for shoes or clothes or she had a Walkman if, you know, she might have dropped that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Police had literally nothing to work off of. No witnesses, no evidence, no clues. Tiffany Sessions seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth, and the local law enforcement had no idea where she might be. On top of that, this tiny town, dealing with what was becoming a massive missing person search in 1989, was inexperienced, overwhelmed, and arguably ill-equipped for the task. Well, I had to buy them a fax machine. They didn't even have a fax machine at the police department. Swear to God. A day after Tiffany disappeared, we were like, okay, you know, all we're running off of, most of us, the amateurs, we're all running off of what you see on TV. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, can't we get some dogs out here? And they're like, we don't have any. They didn't have a helicopter either. I had to get that. I mean, it was insane. No fax machine, no helicopter for the search, no anything. So what I did was I traded off the helicopter to one of the news stations. I said, I'll ride in a cop chopper with you if you donate that you keep it up there and we use it and you'll be the only one that has it for me. And so that's what we did. It was pre-cell phones. It was pre a lot of things. And so most of the information was relayed either in person at meetings among the local law enforcement or by telephone. That's the Alachua County Sheriff, Sadie Darnell. 
Gainesville is in Alachua County, by the way, and if you'll remember from the first episode, Sheriff Darnell was the sheriff speaking at the press conference I was at in 2014. But when Tiffany disappeared in 1989, she was the public information officer at the Gainesville Police Department. We didn't have computers, we didn't have texts, we didn't have emails. Can you imagine how sluggish that information flow would be. But that's all we knew. That was normal for us. Plus, stuff like this just didn't happen in Gainesville. They had never dealt with something like Tiffany's case. And most law enforcement agencies would have had a lot of the same struggles Alachua County was dealing with back then. There were no Amber Alerts, and missing person searches looked nothing like we know them today. But for Pat, None of that mattered. And honestly, if all five branches of the military had been brought in to look for Tiffany, I'm still not sure that would have been enough for Pat Sessions. It was his kid. And an inexperienced sheriff's office was no match for the operation he was directing. I guess you should know some things about Pat Sessions before we get into the search. First of all, he's intense. I've had nothing but pleasant experiences with him, but I would not want to be on his bad side or ever try to get in his way. Second, he served in the Coast Guard. And third, he's a brilliant businessman. When Tiffany went missing, he was a president of development at Arvida, a company that developed upscale planned communities in Florida. Patrick was on the team behind Boca West and Coco Plum and was working on Weston when Tiffany disappeared. He was a marketing guru and immediately funneled all of those skills and resources into finding his daughter. I had a lot of people, you know, I had a whole PR department at Arvida and God love our writer. They said, you take whatever you need. You take whatever people you need, anything you need. And so I had all that. And I had stuff that 99% of people in the world don't have. And I was lucky enough to have it. And we literally, it was written up in, in the Wall Street Journal. We had a, it was run like a business. So it was fine, Tiffany. And in addition to all of that, he was smart enough to recognize that he didn't know everything. And so he brought in some help. Pat was always very driven from the very beginning. A lot of parents fall apart, but Pat was driven. I mean, knew what he had to do. He almost immediately conducted it like a business. So I was, for lack of a better word, his translator. I translated law enforcement to him and a grieving father to them. So that's that sort of was my role. This is Wayne Black, and he's being a bit modest. Wayne is a private eye out of Miami, and since he and Patrick were associates back when Tiffany disappeared, Patrick asked him to come to Gainesville to help. Wayne was there from day one, immediately became a key investigator, and basically never left. It's been so long ago, but in a way it seems like yesterday. When we went to Gainesville that day in in February of 1989, I was hoping it wouldn't last 30 minutes. I never thought it would last 30 days. And I sure didn't think it would last 30 years. But it was, it was crazy. We immediately tried to be creative and expand the search. So what I explained to Pat is, think about if you're driving or you're walking, when the time elapsed uh, going outward in a concentric circle. So at two hours, you could be a mile away. At eight hours, you could be 10 miles away, 20 miles away. So we really immediately broadened the search at least in terms of even the publicity, to help get people help us. Second day, we were out 100 miles, maybe even more. And you mentioned when you first went that you were hoping it didn't last, you know, 30 minutes. What what did you initially think happened, and when did that begin to change? 
Well, you always hope that, right? You think, especially this is a friend's daughter. You go, okay, she probably met up with some friends, went to a party. She's going to walk in that door anytime. And every time the door opened, we looked to see if she was going to walk in the door. But after about the second day, I thought, oh, this is really going to be ugly. And turns out it was. Wayne and Patrick worked in conjunction with the local law enforcement to put on the biggest missing person search in Florida history. I want to stop right here and be really clear. I am not suggesting that local law enforcement was not doing its job here and that Wayne and Patrick had to step in and do it for them. Law enforcement was absolutely already doing searches and had a lot of people working around the clock to find Tiffany. Both the Gainesville Police Department and the Alachua County Sheriff's Office were fully invested and numerous detectives were working hard on her case alongside agents from the FBI and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. But again, what was happening was just not enough for Pat, and the searches the agencies were doing were not going to cut it. So he and Wayne started making their own plans for how they wanted things done and hoped the law enforcement agencies would join in. Wayne and I, we ran that search. They told me they couldn't do a search because they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have to do it. We put that search together and they told me they wouldn't do it. And I said, I don't care whether you do it or not. I said, just get out of my way. And so we started to put it together and they jumped on board finally. And that in the, in the day was probably one of the biggest searches that ever had been done for a missing kid. I was in the Coast Guard for six years. I know how to do a search. One of my closest friends was a search and rescue guy for the city of Miami, ran the search and rescue team. We had guys that were in Vietnam. We had grid maps. You know, it looked like a military operation. The PR, we had PR tents. We had it all set up. We had kits. You know, you got it and you had everything you needed to ever know about Tiffany or me or whatever it was. At the same time, we had helicopter searching and there was a a period of time that we used cadaver dogs and scent dogs and everything else. I mean, if there was anything we could think of or dream of, Alachua County did it. It wasn't one of these, well, we're not going to do that, like some agencies. If we could think about it and it was reasonable and we suggested it, they did it. And we did it. It was organized like a military plan and people came, they checked in at the tent, they got into groups, they walked 10 feet apart and covered just tons of areas swamp areas and a lot of things. I would think that would be a very difficult place to search. Yeah, it is. It was it was difficult to search. Well, you know the area up there, a lot of sawgrass, a lot of swampy areas and, and trees and places everywhere. like that. Yeah. I mean, but they they did it. I remember John Offerdahl, the dolphin player was in a leg cast at the time. He broke his leg and he was walking out there in a swamp with a cast on. That's another thing about Pat. He knew everyone. There were several Miami Dolphins players, including Dan Marino, helping him look for his daughter, along with every organized group or team he could think of within the state of Florida. We had the football team. The biggest group we had, there's a boot camp in Orlando for the Navy. They sent buses full of recruits. We ended up with like a thousand people out there. Uh, it was unbelievable. And that helps you because you think to yourself, okay, at least I know now that in this block anyway, I know she's not there, you know? And so you eliminate things. I mean, that was kind of what we were doing in a lot of it is just trying to say, okay, we don't have a lead to go in with, so let's try and eliminate everything and whatever's left, maybe that's it. But that didn't end up working. All those searches on the ground, in the air, and through the swamps turned up nothing. No Walkman, no watch, no witnesses. No Tiffany. I am frustrated. I'm angry. I, I can't believe that with the amount of people that have helped, with the amount of coverage that's been given this, 
that something hasn't turned up. Pat didn't slow down, though, and the marketing strategy to find Tiffany kept going for months on end. She was on billboards, there was a 1-800 tip line, and there were flyers everywhere. One of the things that Pat did creatively, I've never seen anybody do this, is he bought the mailing list for Alachua County and put Tiffany's picture in every home. He contacted the mail delivery people. They had Tiffany's picture. Pizza delivery people had Tiffany's picture, right? They go to all the doors and everything like that. So in February of 1989, everyone in Gainesville was opening their mailboxes to flyers of this missing UF student. And everyone in Gainesville would have included Paul Rolls and his wife, Kathy. I'm going to pause here because you're probably remembering Paul's wife was named Linda and the couple lived in Miami. So let's back up and go back to 1972 for a minute. In the last episode, I told you about Linda Rolls, right? She was the flight attendant who was married to Paul when he murdered their neighbor in South Florida. Well, a detective told me Linda actually stayed with Paul through his sentencing because his attorney said it would be better for Paul. She was apparently told, you're safe. He's never going to hurt you. It's all the other women in the world who should be worried about Paul Rolls. As part of his plea deal, Paul spent the first three and a half years of his life sentence in a mental health hospital to go through the MDSO, or Mentally Disordered Sex Offenders, program. And about a year into that, he and Linda got divorced. Now, while Paul was in the MDSO program, he was put through numerous tests and seen by several psychiatrists. Paul admitted to them that he knew he had a real problem with women, but it was one of the psychiatrists who connected that problem to big disturbances in the sexual realm. That psychiatrist added that Paul was under constant pressure from his impulses when he saw women and that his urges were so strong he was hard-pressed not to consider rape. Now, partly because of that desire and partly because of the circumstances, Paul didn't feel like he was fully at fault for Linda Fita's murder. If the door had been locked, he said, he would have been able to go away. One of the tests Paul was given, though not until the 90s, was a personality and psychology test called the MMPI. It's a heavily used test with close to 600 true or false questions, and they screen for personality and psychological disorders. And when Paul took it, he, quote, so grossly exaggerated psychopathology that his test was invalid. But here's the thing. No one knew any of that, and when Paul transferred into a regular prison, he was a model prisoner. He became a clerk in the prison chapel, enrolled himself in a sex offender program, got his associate's degree, he joined the JCs, and a group of reformed Christian alcoholics. By the way, Paul was not an alcoholic. I FOIA'd Paul's parole file a while back, which just means I sent a formal request to the government asking for it. And when I got the file, I found dozens of letters advocating for Paul to be released from prison as early as 1978, just six years after he had murdered Linda. People would write to the parole commission to brag on Paul's behavior and talk about what a great asset he would be to society. A lot of the letters came from the prison staff, the librarian, chaplain, teachers, parole officers... And most all of them referenced Paul's connection to the religious programs in the prison and his extensive counseling. They'd write things like, He's always been an individual who appears at this time to be very stable and willing to resume his place as a productive member of society. Or, Paul should do well on parole. It strikes me every time I read part of Paul's file that talks about his deep problems with and desires to harm women, and then read another part where people are saying, oh, he should be fine in society, 
based on his exemplary behavior in this all-male prison. Anyway, there's one more thing from Paul's file that I think you have to know about, because out of nowhere, there's this letter, and it's dated September 26, 1984, while Paul is still in prison, but trying to get out on parole. My colleague Wendy Brunner is going to read you a few of the paragraphs. It wasn't long after I began working with Paul when we both realized a relationship was developing between us going beyond that of employer-employee. Our mutual attraction was based on many factors, the foundation of which was our love of God, our love for each other, and our desire to have a complete family. I was very hurt by a divorce that left me with two small children to support all alone. I decided then, for my own benefit— and for the benefit of my children, I would be very cautious in making a decision to remarry. I would only consider someone who understood the true nature of love and the responsibilities which go along with loving. I feel Paul is that someone. He wants more than anything to be a good husband to me, a good father to my children, and any children we may have during our marriage. Paul shares his love with me continually, just as he does with others around him, even my children who he's never seen, only communicated with via telephone and letters. It is my sincere hope that this board will offer him, through early release, the impetus he needs to go on to lead that successful, productive life he so desires. Paul could not be entering a better environment than the home we can together provide for ourselves. I want very much to help Paul continue on his path to success. I sincerely believe in who he is and will continue to become. I can help him the rest of the way. It's signed, Catherine F. Poole. Everybody either called her Nanny, Kathy, Catherine, or Cass. Paul used to call Kathy Cass a lot. That's Andrew Poole, Kathy Poole's son. That's where I guess Kathy and Paul met was in the prison. He was in a church there and seeing counseling, and she, I guess, worked in the administrative office. Now, this is all hearsay. I don't know how much of it is actually true or false, but this is what I've been told by Kathy herself, was they had met through an organization, through the prison system, and they just kind of hit it off and went from there. Okay, before you say Kathy Poole must have been nuts for knowing what Paul had done, why he was in prison, falling in love with him, and then writing all of these letters and advocating for him to get out of prison early, I think it's really important we take a step back and look at who Paul Rolls was. There's a reason people who knew him compare him to Ted Bundy. He was slick and smart and arguably very manipulative. Everyone in that prison seemed to believe what Paul wanted them to believe, that the murder he committed was an accident where he'd just gotten carried away. And everything stemmed from his terrible childhood because he was a victim too. And more importantly, he was reformed. Maybe some of what people saw in Paul was real. Maybe some of the years of counseling worked. Maybe he really did find God and want to change his life for good. Or Maybe he was just a really good actor. It wouldn't matter, though. Whatever it was worked. And even though Paul had been sentenced to life in prison after strangling his neighbor and trying to rape her dead body, he was going to get out. That's just kind of how it was in the 80s. Paul was paroled in 1985 after serving just 13 years. He and Kathy got married on Christmas Eve, and then Paul moved in with Kathy and her two teen daughters. And from all accounts, it was really bad. Here's Andrew. 
Both girls did not like him when he moved in. Pretty much one of those, you're not my daddy. Were they upset with your mom for marrying Paul? Yes. Because they didn't like him? Nope. Okay. From what I've been told from both girls was he was a very possessive person. You know, he wanted to pretty much say, hey, if I say you can't do this, you can't do this. There's a psych report that talks about just how volatile the Rolls household was when it came to the relationship between Paul and his stepdaughters. And I've decided to leave those details out of this podcast. Both of Kathy's daughters have made it very clear, both to me and law enforcement, that they want nothing to do with Paul or what he did. And I can only imagine how traumatic all of it was and is for them, so I'm not going to bring their childhood with Paul back up. With Andrew, though, it was really different. He was born about a year and a half after Paul was released from prison. One of Kathy's daughters was his birth mom, but since she was a teenager, Paul and Kathy would end up raising Andrew as their own. And then the year after he was born, the Rolls family moved to Gainesville, and Paul got a job with Crom Equipment Rentals, a company that delivered and put up scaffolding for construction projects. Paul was a yard laborer and delivery driver for them, and it kind of seemed like Kathy's plan to get Paul back into regular society was working. And, and that's the thing. I mean, what I knew of him as a young child, he was great. I just thought he was dad. He came around when he came around, hugs and kisses everywhere, you know, pretty much a typical family man. He worked two jobs, came around when he could. I mean, he really kind of took a dad role on. He treated me like I was his own, you know, when he was around. When he was around. This is key, because even though they were married, Andrew describes Paul and Kathy's relationship as on again, off again. When they were on, Dad was home and everything was normal. But when they were off, Paul was just gone. Do you say when he came around, where was he the rest of the time? He always had his own apartment. He always had his own place. When he was staying with us, you know, him and Kathy were always on again, off again. They'd sit there and try to work things out. They'd be together for about the longest that I know of was six months. And then he'd turn around, hey, I got to go. I got to do my own thing. And he was off again. Always had something else. Always had a backup plan. I think I had walked in on them one time in a fight. Mm-hmm. And it was more of just a, a financial thing. And that was when the house there in Gainesville, um, the two-story house, Kathy, her and Paul were trying to buy that house. And Paul ended up moving out because that was when he had stayed with us the longest. I remember several Christmases there. But uh, it, it just got to where too much was going on. And Paul's just like, you know what, I got to go. And that's when he had had an apartment there downtown over by the college, close to where I guess Miss Sessions went missing. Did you catch that? Andrew says Paul moved out of the house he shared with his wife and kids and into his own place, closer to the University of Florida and closer to where Tiffany Sessions went missing. All right, well, I want to start with your name. Kenny Mack. Spelled traditionally? M-A-C-K. So in 1989, when Tiffany went missing, what was your job title? I was a detective sergeant in the Criminal Investigation Division at Lockwood County Sheriff's Office. I supervised a group of detectives who investigated crimes in a certain section of the county. Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack was one of the many detectives at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office working on Tiffany's investigation. When do you first remember hearing that Tiffany Sessions had disappeared? I was in Ocala at a meeting, and they called me and said she had disappeared. And 
her father was in town and organizing a, a massive search. So I came back and we thought at the time that she had been abducted just for the fact that there was no physical evidence around. So we know a crime was not committed at that location when she was last seen. There was not one committed at the apartment because we couldn't find any evidence. So we, we knew she had to be abducted or carried off some way. But we had nothing to go on. I mean, she was here one day, she went out for a jog, and she's gone. Basically, we had nothing, nothing to go with. How many leads came in? I couldn't tell you. Uh, thousands, thousands came in. Anywhere from, you know, I, I saw Tiffany get into a car to a psychic calling and said I had a dream. Anything in between. How I prioritize those, those leads was I would look at them and say, well, does this fit what we think happened? Is this person credible? And then we go from there. Kenny had a team that would track down each of those leads, crossing off each one when they didn't pan out. And none of them panned out. How long were you just looking and feeling none of this is it? Months. Months. We had no, no person that really stood out at the time. In my mind, I knew she was dead. I mean, you don't kidnap somebody and keep them for a long time, in my experience, without somebody knowing about it. And with all the publicity, somebody would have said something. So I knew, I knew when we didn't turn up anything in the first 48 or 64 hours, she was probably deceased. Did you think you'd ever find her? No. After all the extensive searches, and I'm talking about extensive foot-by-foot -foot searches and a wide radius around her apartment and where she went missing, turned up nothing. All the publicity turned up nothing. Are we ever going to be able to find her? I doubt it. In the beginning, it was, you know, when you get on a roller coaster, the first climb up that big, tall hill, you know, you're going up to the top, and then all of a sudden you go down, and, and those hills get smaller and smaller. It was kind of like riding a roller coaster. I don't think I can adequately express just how horrible this was for Tiffany's parents. Not only were they dealing with their daughter's disappearance, but they were having to deal with all the people around it. And I don't mean law enforcement, I mean the thousands of people who called them and told them they had Tiffany, they had seen Tiffany, or even that they had killed Tiffany. And then on top of that, anytime a body showed up anywhere in the country, someone called and asked them if they thought it could be Tiffany. Hillary told me she remembers getting a phone call from a reporter one day after a leg had been found in a river in Tennessee, and the reporter asked her if the leg belonged to her daughter. In the very beginning, everything was, oh good, this is going to be it, we're going we're gonna to find her. And then the next time, yes, this is going to be it, this is gonna, we're going to find her. And then you, you don't get callous because you always keep that hope alive. I think the hardest part for me was I went to um, Long Island, New York, and met with a medium up there. His name is George Anderson. Tiffy wasn't even gone for three months. And he said, I hate to tell you this, but something's happened to her head. And he said, I can't tell whether she was strangled. 
I don't know whether she was shot by a, a gun or hit with something hard, and he saw like a scar over her eyebrow. He said, I really don't think that she's with us anymore. Psychics and mediums were all over this case. Hillary said there were more than a hundred. Actually, the way she phrased it was that they had over a hundred mediums, psychics, and weirdos. And that might sound kind of strange, but I don't know. If my kid vanished off the face of the earth, I'd probably try just about everything too. And that's what they did. To this day, Hillary lives in the same house she lived in when Tiffany disappeared. She's always said if Tiffany ever came back, it's the only way she'd be able to find her mom. I said if she can get back to Florida and she can get back to Bel Rico, then she's going to find me. Otherwise, how are you going to find me? Both Hillary and Pat have always made it a point to stay in the media, rarely, if ever, turning down interviews because they just never knew which one might be the one that mattered. The theory's always been, somebody knows something. And it's entirely possible that whoever that somebody is never even realized what they knew or had maybe seen. So Pat and Hillary decided that the media was probably their best hope for getting information out and trying to reach that somebody. There was no internet. You know, you can punch a button today and put your kid out there and a million people will see it. We didn't have that. And so, you know, we did the flyers and we did the papers and all that thing. But my internet was TV. I could put out a thousand flyers, but I could reach 500,000 people in Miami on the six o'clock news. And I learned quickly what time you had to have something done to get on the new news. And I learned, and I can honestly say, and you're the last of it right now, I have never turned down an interview, ever. And I, God knows how many I did of them. We would dream up every week an excuse for a press conference. I learned early, you can't just keep saying, we're looking, it didn't work. So as an example, when I decided to do the reward, I started off at like 50 grand on purpose. And then two weeks later, I'd raise it to 150 and it got up to at one point to 500. And so we would use that as an excuse. And then the school there at Weston had a candlelight vigil thing. We'd use that. and so. What these guys said to me is that, Pat, we will come cover any reasonable thing that you do. Don't lie to us. But if you've got anything, you let us decide what it is. It got so far that way, they started calling me. Well, Pat, why don't you do this? And while Pat and Hillary were working to keep the media about Tiffany going, they were also both physically looking for their daughter for months. For about eight weeks, we had a girl from Louisiana who was communicating with me by phone. And then she would send me information on what I was supposed to be looking for. So for six weeks, we went to this one place and we were back and forth and back and forth and digging. And every weekend when we finished, we would take pictures and, you know, like a panoramic view. And then I would put them all together and put them in a package and send them off to her. And then she would send back to me with circles on it. This is where you need to check and this is where you need to check it. We didn't find anything, but we went to that location to see if there was anything that, you know, might be tippy. There was another place that we went up in the Gainesville area and we started digging and it was probably 20 feet by 20 feet and it was probably four feet deep and we ran into fire ant mounds and all kinds of stuff and didn't find anything. Um, but so this you is, went out multiple times oh, yeah. for your own daughter. This is a Ouija board. But whatever came in our direction, we looked at. 
And in addition to digging for her own daughter's body, Hillary regularly had to go look at other bodies. I've had to deal with 179 dead bodies since Tiffy first disappeared. And that was before DNA. And that was when we were just using blood type and dental records. And they've been in various states of decomp. Having to identify them? Or? Yeah, to see if it was Tiffy. But now with DNA, I don't have to do that. But in the very beginning, there wasn't DNA. It was only blood type. Five days after Tiffany disappeared, Pat set up a 24-hour 1-800 hotline for tips. And a lot of the time, he and Wayne would then run the leads down themselves. You so, must have gotten thousands of tips. Oh, God. I mean, the mail, every day here, there was something in the mail. It's some of the most hideous stuff you've ever seen in your life. You know, we're going to come off her head if you don't give us the money tomorrow morning kind of stuff. It was exhausting, and we went all over the place, went all over the country, and, you know, we get a lead in Georgia, and, you know, I was borrowing planes from my friends, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. But it was all a matter of trying to do, you had to do for yourself. And uh, I always wanted to be able to say to Tiffany, if she showed up tomorrow, I did everything I could do. Years went by, and a few suspects did come and go, but Tiffany's case went ice cold. The years turned into a decade, a decade turned into two, and they were still no closer to finding Tiffany or figuring out what had happened to her than the day she went missing. It's now been 31 years, and there's still not a scrap of physical evidence, and Tiffany Sessions has never been found. Did you ever give up on finding her alive? Was if, that you, if you call giving up, in, in my mind, Really, three or four months in, I, I just, I couldn't, from a from a mental point of view, think of anything that would have accounted for this that was going to get her back. But in your heart, you're praying for it. Throughout this case, there were a lot of mistakes made. And some of them stemmed from how overwhelming the search had been, but some were because we just didn't know better back then. In Tiffany's case, there were many many mistakes made by law enforcement. Over time and after I became sheriff, I was amazed that Patrick and Hillary Sessions even had the patience, the wherewithal to be able to speak civilly to law enforcement because they had been through so much and it wasn't any intentional oversights or any intentional mistakes that were made, but they were, they were egregious and, uh, and difficult to get through. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Absolutely. But what do you think was the, the biggest missed spot? I think the biggest missed spot in hindsight was looking at individuals who had been released from prison that came to our area. We receive that information now in an autom automated fashion. Back then, it may have been, I don't remember, but it may have been that we would have had to call the prison, the Department of Corrections, to find out you know, who had been released or go visit the prison and find out who had been released because they keep those records. I think that was the biggest miss. Then we would have found a group of um, names, check the criminal history of the names, look at who may rise to the top 25 and then start knocking each one of those off and find out where they were on the, on the day. Sounds easy now. 
sounds logical now, but back then, we, we, being all of us in law enforcement, and particularly the sheriff's office, were just inundated with information. And I know they did everything that they could at the time, but that would have been something that, that we have learned from, and that's what we do on a regular basis now. The mistakes in this case are really painful to look at now, but most of the people who were involved back then agree. Everything they knew to do to find Tiffany Sessions was done, period. But if they had tracked that information down, if they had been able to get a list of sex offenders and murderers who had gotten out of prison and moved to Gainesville, they would have eventually come to the name Paul Rolls. Some interviews would have then told them that the construction site Paul was working on was directly on Tiffany's walking path, and he could have seen her walking her route several days a week. A look at his timesheets would have shown that Paul, who detectives say never missed work, was absent on February 9, 1989. And finding all of that out might have helped them find Tiffany, and it could have prevented another murder. You know, it was just, bizarre that we missed some of those things. But I, in hindsight, I overwhelmed them too. You know, I mean, I just didn't give them a break. But I never ever, and I don't to this moment, think that they dropped the ball on purpose. Because I know they were trying as hard as they could. It wasn't like they were, weren't doing anything. They were doing everything. And there was too much to do. The leads were just too much. Somewhere in there, Pat thinks the answer got missed. He thinks something that could have solved the case did come in at some point and it got brushed off or forgotten or buried. And it's entirely possible. But I think there was another mistake. And I'm not even sure I can call it that because it definitely wasn't intentional. And I don't even think it was preventable. But while they were looking for Tiffany Sessions all over Gainesville, I think they might have missed a spot. I woke up this morning and cried because I feel like I could have saved that girl's life. On this season of Shallow Graves. I'll never forget what happened to me that night. And I'll never forget what she was wearing. And all I can remember is bright red sweatpants and very white shoes. But first. Here's the problem. We've got five bodies. We don't have a suspect that's in custody. The Crystal Hoyt crime scene, it was uh, nothing like I had ever experienced before, and I don't know of anyone that was on the scene that had experienced anything quite like that. You knew in the back of your mind you had to do something, but all we could do was follow the leads. Nobody had off. Nobody was off for months, months. Nobody had a day off. And through the use of dental records, the body has been positively identified as that of Elizabeth Helen Foster, age 21. It brought back Tiffany's case in our mind. Having a body found in a shallow grave, the obvious thought was, are they connected? I mean, you got the student homicides, you got Tiffany missing carpet killer, you know, not again.
Make sure to subscribe to Shallow Graves so you get the next episode automatically. But until then, call me. I have a voicemail set up because I want to hear what you think and any questions you have about the podcast. And I might play your message later on this season. The number is 352-559-5007. You can also reach me through my Instagram or Facebook page, Haley Holloway, or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to Jessica McGill for always agreeing to be my first listener, and to Wendy Brunner, one of the reasons I was ever in Gainesville in the first place. Music for this episode is by Mark at Lineout Studio, and music editing and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.